Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Figured since I introduced you guys to the fake sport of hobby horsing last week, I should probably try to redeem myself and uh, give you a real sport today. Uh, <laughs> that movie is, or that scene's from the 2006 movie, Facing the Giants. Now, I won't lie, I struggle with the whole, if we just pray God will help us win idea that sometimes works its way into, into sports movies like this. Um, sometimes it's sort of produced, when it's produced by evangelicals, that, that, that idea is almost built in. It's the good guys versus the bad guys. And the good guys have got to get their faith problem figured out so that God will uh, help them overcome the bad guys. The problem is real life isn't always as, as quite clear cut. I've always asked the question, what happens if you've got two teams that are praying for the win? You know, how, how does that work itself out? Or, or what happens if you pray and God doesn't let you win? You know, again, those, those, we don't make movies with those dilemmas. Um, it, it's kind of like when we pray for rain or when we pray for sunny weather. Because you know that as much as you might be praying for the rain to stop, there's a farmer somewhere praying that the rain would continue. And so I've always struggled with praying for weather because somebody's praying opposite of you somewhere. And uh, I've always wrestled with that as well. However, if I don't particularly care for the baked-in theology of the movie, I absolutely love this scene. Because this scene, I mean... You can't watch it and not kind of get the goosebumps on your uh, uh, on your arms. And I feel bad for any football teams that uh, that may be practicing this week because because uh, it's supposed to be a hot one this week. And I don't know that any death crawls are going to be going on out on the practice field of our local high schools this week. Of course, Brock in that clip is a team leader. Coach Taylor is trying to help him to see what kind of influence he has over the other over the other teammates. And he wasn't sure he could make it to the 50. You heard him there when he says, if we, if we got to the 20, he says, don't worry about the 20. You got more in you. And he, and he gets him past the 20, gets him past the 50. He has no idea where he is until he crosses the end zone and is, and is finally off the hook. It's amazing what happens when you take away all the distractions, apply a healthy dose of football coach encouragement, and it turns out that that kid had a whole lot more in him than he thought he had. And he became an on-the-field example for what it means to remain steadfast in the face of opposition. And regardless of the overall message of the movie, I, I can get behind that message, steadfast in the face of opposition. I think that's why sports in real life, as well as all the countless biblical examples, are such a potent object lesson for the Christian faith, whether it's running a race, uh, a, a sport like football, whatever it may be. You think about just football. It's football season. Y'all happy about that? Everybody's happy about football season. It's just, just thrilled. The guys playing Friday night when it's 100 degrees aren't happy about football season. But, but, uh, but man, it's football season. It's in the air. It was, uh, it was cool yesterday morning, kind of had that Christmas. It's like, yeah, it's football time's here, right? <clears throat> in order to compete, a team has to play what? Whole game. How many times have we watched a football team that played well for two or, or three quarters to, to fall apart in the second half or the fourth quarter just because they didn't have the steam, they didn't have the endurance to, to finish, they didn't have the endurance to, to get the ball to the end of the game. And it's not just physical endurance, as important as physical endurance may be. I mean, that's, I don't know how many yards dude actually climbed, but the fact that he climbed 10 yards for the movie is impressive enough to me. 
But football's a game of mental toughness as well. There's, it's not just slobber knocking the guy across the line from you. There's mental toughness that goes into it as well because again, uh, you gotta understand the dynamic of every snap. You gotta adjust to changes that the opposite, opposite team makes. And if you check out at any point in time, the potential is very high that you're gonna miss something and you're gonna make a very, very costly mistake. Again, you don't have to work hard to see the parallels work themselves out in our Christian experience. We are at our best, though, and in Christ when we are fully engaged all the way through to the end. All four quarters, every snap, we give it our all. What I love about that clip from Facing the Giants is that Brock gave it his all, not because he believed he could, but because his coach was right there encouraging him every step of the way. The church at Thessalonica has been given extensive instructions on what the end looks like. And now they know they got some work to do. The end's not here yet, Paul comes to that conclusion. We've not reached the end. The, 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 The signs are not ready yet. We're not to the end. And as long as we're not to the end yet, there's still some work to do. They know what spiritual realities are gonna unfold as the clock continues to tick, as we continue that trajectory even today. And so while there is time, There is still ample work to do. We've talked over the last few weeks about that clock that is ticking down. Church, we are still living in a season where the clock is winding down. There is coming a day when Christ is going to return, is gonna restore everything like it needs to be. Those who are in Christ are gonna be taken care of. That day is coming. We know that day is coming. We believe on the confidence of God's word that that day is absolutely coming, but we still have work to do. That leads us into our scripture today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll pick up here in verse 13 from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I would invite you to stand with me if you're able as we read these words together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the faithfulness of your word that it remains steadfast and true, that it gives us a lens by which we can view the world, that it is perfect in its ways, God. I thank you that it serves as a judge against our own conscience and a guide for our souls. Lord, may we love it and appreciate it and apply it correctly in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, be seated. This passage is an interesting one, particularly for the fact that about the last 500 years or so, the the church has really gotten worked up in the language that is used in this passage. You hear phrases that, that... For some Baptists, work is kind of trigger words. You hear things like, God chose you and God called you. And again, some people hear that and they they immediately start to be rubbed the wrong way. If you've ever heard the doctrine of election come up in a conversation, this is what we're dealing with here. It has nothing to do with the concept of election that you're hearing on the news today. I can assure you that the two things are not the same thing. 
And, and truth be told, there have been some traditionally very heated arguments, even fights over the meaning of these terms. And instead of coming to a consensus over what exactly is going on here, the church does what the church always seems to do. It fractions into separate camps based on widely diverging understanding of how God's sovereignty and how man's freedom actually work together. The question here is quite simple. Does God choose us? Do we choose God? Or is there some combination at work of both? As a pastor, I get asked, Pastor, where, where do you stand on this? What's your, what's your stance on this, on this controversial subject? Wouldn't you like to know what my stance is on this controversial subject? And my honest answer is that my answer is both. The Bible presents to us what I call a paradox. Uh, and a paradox is where it's not a contradiction. It's where two truths coexist that don't exclude one another. I'm in no position to, agree, to disagree with the Apostle Paul. There's a lot of people who like to disagree with what the Bible says. I will tell you this, disagreeing with the Bible is way above my pay grade. I am in no position to disagree with what the Word of God says. And Paul clearly says it here that he chose the believers that made up the church at Thessalonica. I can't read that any other way. He chose them. Likewise, I'm in no position to disagree with what Paul says in passages like Romans 10, 13 and plenty other passages like it. Paul said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I can't disagree with Paul on either of those points. So Paul says that yes, God called, but he also says that everyone who calls on God will be saved. And so I have two truths that exist side by side with one another here. And so I don't disagree with either of those things. Clearly though, somebody's making a choice here. Somehow God chooses us for salvation and somehow we choose to receive the offer. It's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. In our finite wisdom as human beings, we wanna to try to solve it. We wanna to try to fix the paradox. We wanna know what the right answer is. And the right answer is yes. Both of these things are true. The Bible presents them both. And there are some things that are known only in the infinite mind of God that are unknowable to us. And it's okay that we recognize that there are things that God knows that that we simply can't know, and that's okay. He's told us what we need to know. More than that is more than he thinks we need to know, and I simply believe it's unknowable how God can both be sovereign, in charge of everything, at the same time how we can have moral agency, how we can choose to respond to what God says and what God does. So I believe both those things are true. They're not incompatible. For me, this idea of election, it's kind of like an internal combustion engine. Y'all know what that is. It makes your car run unless you got one of those fancy things like a Tesla or something. Um, the, I know how the engine sort of works, that the output of my engine is physical movement. And it gets involved in turning transmissions and turning axles and turning wheels. And so I know that when my engine is working, that I'm moving in a direction, one way or another, forward or backwards. I know that I'm moving in some direction. And I know that in order to get my engine to create that movement, I have to introduce a highly flammable liquid into the engine when I fill my tank up at the gas station. So I understand that that's what happens on the front end, and I understand what happens on the back end. And I understand that somehow my engine converts that highly flammable liquid into thousands of controlled explosions every single minute without blowing up the vehicle or its passengers. I understand that, I get it, sorta, 
And I know some of y'all in here understand how that works better than others, but I'm gonna tell you this, the way that my engine does that in my truck is is just as mysterious to me as how God can have total sovereign control over everything and at the same time give me the freedom to choose to receive the gospel. I, I don't know how it works, but I somehow know that it does work. And I just trust that the process is there. And y'all that know more about it, good for you, I'm happy. Don't try to explain it to me because it's not gonna change the way I, I, it's not gonna fix anything. God absolutely chose the Thessalonians. He said it here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But not a single one of those Thessalonians was saved if they did not confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead. Not a one of them. None of them woke up and said, well, I'm saved now. Nothing, I, I, I didn't pick it. It wasn't for me, but I don't have a choice in the matter. Every single believer at the church at Thessalonica said, just as this young lady did in the baptistry this morning, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Every one of them. In the same passage, Paul points to remind the church of God's choice. They were chosen, but he's also challenging the church they got work to do. They've got to stand firm. They've got to hold fast to what Paul's instruction is. And so in the same passage, you see God's sovereignty as he chooses. You also see their freedom working side by side. They have work to do in response to what God does. This tells me that we probably spend way too much time trying to resolve the tension rather than just doing what the Bible says. Let's just do what it says and stop trying to make the tension go away. What if the tension's there for our good? Because it keeps us honest and helps us continue to appreciate and, and, and dig into God's word to see what it has to say to us. Because the truth is this, we can simultaneously be grateful for God's work and salvation and also believe that we have the freedom to accept or reject the gift. I can be grateful for what God has done, but I can also believe wholeheartedly that when the gospel is shared, every one of us have a choice to make. Do we receive it or do we reject it? Do we, do we receive what God has done or do we kick out what God has done? And I really do believe that. However, when I read about what Paul says here, I can't help but consider this, and this is such an incredible truth. God has a plan and purpose for you. God has a plan and purpose for you. Because that's what this says to me, that if God chose me, he didn't choose me out of a, as an accident. It wasn't an afterthought in the mind of God. He's not looking at the roster and asking the assistant coach, how, the, how in the world did this guy get on the team? It's not a surprise to him. It's not an accident. You're not even a bad commit on National Signing Day. He, he puts you there. He chose you. He has a plan and purpose for you. And you need to understand that if you are a Christian today, hear me in this, you are a valuable part of the team. Every one of us is a valuable part of the team. And he has just the position he wants you to play. That's a sports analogy. The Bible talks about giftedness, that he, he gifts us and equips us for the good of the body. He equips us with gifts that are be deployed in the church for the good of the kingdom. If you are in Christ today, he has just the spot for you. He has just the position for you. He has given you the gifts that you need for the good of his church, for the good of the kingdom of God. All that warrants a pretty serious question though. If you are a Christian today, does your life reflect the fact that God took such an amazing interest in you to rescue you out of despair and out of the agony of sin and death? Think about it. 
He took such an interest in you that he snatched you from the clutches of death and hell and gave you a brand new life. He did something in you that no one else could do in you. He made you a brand new creature and set you on a brand new pathway. That's what God did in Christ for you. Does your faith daily bear witness to the fact that God loves you so much that he saved you from certain doom and granted you eternal life? That's a, that's a tall order. And that's just so incredible to me. God wants me on his team. And of course, as much as the Bible uses athletic language, it uses familial language even more. The Bible talks about us being adopted into the family of God. My ministry mentor, he had two adult children. He had a son who was natural born and he had a daughter by adoption. And this wasn't one of these things where the girl didn't know she was adopted. Like they were honest with her. She knew she was adopted. She knew that she wasn't naturally born into the family. And the son did too. And if you can imagine, sometimes the son would get angry at the sister. And I suspect this happens a lot of places where the adoption is known. And he would often use his status as a natural born child to insult her as an adopted child. Again, I mean, ministry families aren't perfect, y'all. Don't think for a second that they're perfect. I love what she'd always say to him. She'd always tell me this. I, I love this story. Her reply was so clever. I think her mom had to give it to her. But she would always say in, rebu in rebuke to her brother, they had to have you. They chose me. <laughs> God adopted you into his family. If you were in Christ, he adopted you and made you part of his family. He didn't have to. He wasn't required to. It wasn't mandated of him. It wasn't like he got the roster and said, I got to take them. No, he, he, he adopted you into his family in Christ. He has a place for you. That's why Paul said back at the end of his first letter to the church here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he said, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's a lot easier for me to do, to give thanks in every circumstance if I recognize and understand that God has a purpose and plan for me, knowing that he wanted me here, knowing that this was what his desire was for me. If I understand that he has a plan and purpose for my life, that means that whatever circumstances my life holds, doesn't matter. I can give thanks for that because that was God's plan and purpose for me. My life isn't just the combination of bad circumstances and bad choices. My life is not just, just the, the, the trials in my life aren't just a confluence of personal sin in a fallen world. Those things are for my good and I ought to be able to give thanks for those things because he has a plan and a purpose for me. Notice what he says in verse 13. Through sanctification by the Spirit. Remember, this is the process by which God makes us more and more into his likeness. God does it through his spirit. He chose you and he is actively working on you and through you to accomplish his good pleasure in you, even through trials, even through self-imposed suffering. Anybody ever experienced that self-imposed suffering? That's where we do dumb things and we have to deal with the consequences of doing those dumb things. Some of us have degrees in self-imposed suffering. Like we, we are so good at it that, that we could hang a diploma on the wall, the school of self-imposed suffering. Even through the mistakes that we make, 
All through those things, he is working in us and sanctifying us and making us more and more into his image. He is working in us and through us, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, conforming us into his image. And that's, that's good news. If you're in Christ, this is what's happening in your life. This is, what, this is what our baptismal candidate has to look forward to of God working in her and through her for the rest of her life. She's got something incredible set before her as she looks forward to that, as God works even through the hard times for her good and for his glory. But Paul then says something else. It's not profound, and it's something that even the youngest among us this morning could probably pick out on a multiple choice quiz. The gospel is the only means by which people are saved. I mean, Paul draws this conclusion here. Again, it's not profound. You've heard this before. It may even be repetitious. But it may seem to be that the simplest statements are the ones that we struggle with the most. This is how people are saved, through the gospel. You can believe what you want to about election or predestination or sovereignty, whatever uh, term you choose to use there. You can believe what you want to about human agency. You can believe that it all depends on you. You can believe that it all depends on God. You can believe what you want to believe about that. But listen to me, regardless of what conclusion you come to there, you cannot ever remove the gospel from the conversation. You cannot remove the gospel from the conversation. Paul says it clearly in Romans chapter one, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of what? The gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Regardless of what your church or denomination or what you personally think about election or choice, whatever, it's still the gospel that leads people, that, that, is, the, that is the power of salvation. It is still the gospel. The church today pays lip service to this. But if we're honest, how busy are we doing things without ever doing the gospel? Again, if the gospel is the power of God to salvation, it's not our full calendar. It's not a schedule of events. It's not this conference or that conference. It's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. Now, hear me correctly. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be doing things. This week, we're about to begin our soccer league. I guess technically it started last week. Soccer is soccer's great. Uh, we got more kids playing soccer this year than we've ever had before. We're full, slap full. Got no more room for kids. As a gentle rebuke, we probably could have had more kids playing, but we don't have enough volunteers to make it happen. Listen, we don't play soccer because we love soccer. At least not all of us. Some of y'all do, and that's okay. American football's still better. Why do we do soccer? Because it's a gospel platform. It's a platform for sharing the gospel. If somebody wanna do upward hobby horsing. No. <laughs> we can, but it better, have a, better be a gospel platform. It better be a place for sharing, <laughs> sharing about the gospel. It's amazing what happens when you put a ball out on a field. People will gather around it oblong shaped, round, people will gather around that ball. And when you got people gathered in around, uh, around a ball, you've got what we call an audience and you've got an audience that's ready to hear the gospel. This year, in the next three months, children are gonna hear the gospel from their coaches. I, I guaranteed, 
100% guarantee children are gonna hear the gospel from their coaches. This year, over the next three months, parents and families are gonna hear the gospel during soccer games. 100% guarantee they are going to hear the gospel. They're gonna gather to watch soccer. They're gonna cheer. They're gonna, they're gonna yell at referees. They're gonna do all the things that they do at sports. But we don't do sports because we love sports. We do sports because we love Jesus. And sports is an avenue to people's hearts. The men and women who coach these kids are gonna have an influence on these children unlike any other adult in their lives. I, to this day, I can be out somewhere in public and a child from a team in years past will come up and give me a hug. Hey, Coach Brian! Because during those few weeks that I had that kid made an impact on that child. And that's great. He's cool, I'm cool, that's good. We can be buddies, but I'm not worried about being his buddy. I'm worried about introducing him to Jesus uh, and using that friendship as an opportunity to make sure people understand who Jesus is. If we just only want to play soccer, that's great. We could go volunteer with the rec department. Nothing wrong with the rec department, but the rec department's job is not to tell people about Jesus. It's to teach people how to play sports. Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church, our job is to tell people, how to tell people about Jesus. And if we can teach them a thing or two about sports along the way, then we're gonna do that. But our number one job is to teach people about Jesus. There are too many times that we as a church do good things at the expense of gospel things. There's nothing wrong with doing good things, but I believe that every good thing we do needs to have a clear pathway to gospel things. We can build a wheelchair ramp for somebody in need, but when we build that wheelchair ramp, that ramp had better be an avenue into the home and into the gospel. There better be a gospel pathway attached to it. We can do a thousand things in the community, but as we do those things, we need to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. You've heard about the tragic fires in Hawaii that ravaged the island of Maui. The news is telling you about all the failure of authorities to get people out of their home or the lack of a plan or, or early alerts. You've heard stories about people who the only place they could escape was into the ocean because the fire ravaged so hot and so quick. And that's tragic. The loss of life is, is terrible. As Christians, it ought to break our hearts to see such a tragic loss of life in something that perhaps wasn't preventable, but at least could have been managed differently. But what the news isn't telling you is about the scores of Christians who were doing good things by helping the victims, but at the same time doing those good things are doing gospel things by pointing people to hope in Jesus. One example of Christians doing good things while pointing people to the gospel are Barry and Marcy Campbell. Barry is currently the pastor of Lahaina Baptist Church. The church was unharmed during the fire and as authorities are granting people access to these burnt out areas, Lahaina Baptist Church is poised to be a gospel lighthouse for a people who've lost everything and their brothers and sisters, the Southern Baptists there on the island of Maui. As a church, we ought to pray for Barry and Marcy as they provide a base of gospel-centered ministry for a deeply hurting area. Listen, it's easy to do good things, but one thing that we see in disasters like we've seen in Hawaii and other places is that good things will often run out or wear out. The only thing that doesn't run out or wear out is the gospel that gives us hope to endure and remain steadfast in whatever storm life throws at us. Lahaina is proof that we can have all of the stuff that's important to us taken in an instant, but it is the gospel that gives us hope in all of our circumstances. To use Paul's language here, people don't obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ through good things, they, re, they obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. And I say this all the time. This is the church's first task. 
We are called to make disciples, but there is a crucial first step of making disciples. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There are no disciples who are not born again. And there are no disciples apart from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one can be born again apart from the gospel. And regardless of how you think it works, either through God's choosing, man's responding, or some sort of mysterious combination of both, you do not get there apart from the gospel. And as the church, we have only one response to this. As Jesus' people, we are responsible for steadfastness and obedience. What does the church do? She stands firm. Don't forget, we go through books of the Bible so that we don't have to revisit the context of what's happening in the book. Don't forget what the church of Thessalonica is up against. There's persecution. It's been ongoing from the start. And I imagine that when they are facing real persecution, there are real temptations to lay low. How easy would it be if pressure was applied and somebody came and sat in a police car in the parking lot at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church and said, hey, y'all can't meet today. How easy would it be for you to just kind of lay low in the house, not be noticed, not be seen? How hard would it be to say, you know what, you can't stop us from worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ in this place? How hard would it be to say, no, you can't say no to people gathering to worship Christ. It would be easy to lay low, but that's not how Christians respond to trial because there's work to be done. The game isn't over. Paul literally says that they should stand firm and hold to the traditions that they were taught. Sometimes we may read that and say, oh, traditions, that means traditions are important. Let me tell you how important traditions are. When you don't have a Bible, traditions are real important because that's all you got. Because the church at Thessalonica didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels. All they had was a small gathering of Paul's letters and that was probably it. So they had Paul's letters and they had Paul's teaching. They did not have a Bible yet. So when Paul says to hold fast to the traditions, he's talking about his teaching that he brought to the church when he was there. We are blessed with scripture today. So we not only have the words of Paul, we have the gospels. We have the story of the early church in the book of Acts. We have John's letters. We have, we have Peter's letters. We have the letter of Jude. We have all of these things that are, that are a gift to us in our New Testament. So we are to follow these things. We have everything that God wants us to know and everything that God wants us to do contained in the word of God. We are to steadfast, be steadfast. We are to stand firm. We are to be obedient. But not only that, that. This is so incredible. We not only are called to do that, we see God working in us to bring about those same ends. Just look at how Paul concludes this. He prays as he does in his letters. He prays that God will comfort hearts and establish those hearts in every good work and word. See, we remain steadfast in our commitment to Christ and we hold fast to the word but while we are doing this, God is establishing us in every good work and word because God doesn't want us to wallow around in disobedience and defiance. If you are in disobedience and defiance of God, God's not happy with that. God's not happy with that arrangement. If you've ever been in a situation, maybe you're a child or you remember in your childhood where you were defiant to your parents and you were wallowing around in misery, your parents weren't happy with that arrangement any more than you were. 
Parents don't want their children wallowing around in misery and self-pity. Parents want their children to thrive and have victory and have obedience. God wants the same thing for us. He doesn't want us to wallow around in disobedience and self-loathing and, and hatred of self. God wants us to have victory of obedience and following him because he knows that following him is for our good. It's in our best interest. He wants us to know the joy of walking in victory over sin. He wants us to know the comfort of hope and the delight of his grace. He wants to know the, the peace of hearts that are comforted with the Spirit. He wants us to know how good it is for our works and words to be established by him. You may sometimes think you're flowing solo. Understand this. God is committed to you. God is committed to you. He wants for your good. He wants for your right. He wants this for you. And again, Paul is painting this picture for us where we see this combination of our efforts as we remain steadfast and obedient, but we also see God establishing those efforts in every good work and word. We are doing our part and God is doing our, his part and those things are working together. What would happen in your life if you were as committed to standing firm and obedient as God is committed to your standing firm and obedient, what would your life look like? You know, 2006 must have been the year of football movies because there was another movie that came out in 2006, another football movie. You may have seen it called We Are Marshall. Maybe you know their story. Real life series of events that affected Marshall University in 1970. Some of you lived through this. On November 14th, 1970, Southern Airways Flight 932 crashed into a hillside just outside Huntington, West Virginia. The crash killed 37 members of the football team, eight coaches, along with other passengers and all the airline personnel. It was a terrible tragedy. And in the wake of the tragedy, the president of the university, Donald Dedman, begins the process of permanently suspending the football program. How do you bounce back from that? How do you play football next year when you lost your football team and all your coaches? However, the university president is ultimately persuaded by members of the Marshall community to rebuild, rebuild the team. And there's that epic scene in the movie where they look out the window after they're having the board meeting to try to figure out what to do with the football program. And they look outside and the college community has gathered and they're all gathered, we are Marshall. And everybody's cheering that cheer. And it's just, I mean, that's another one of those goosebumps. I get goosebumps at sports movies. I don't know why. That's another one of those moments where they realize, okay, let's, we're gonna do this. We're gonna put this thing back together. And it's this incredible story of steadfastness under trial as the Marshall Thundering Herd work towards rebuilding their football team and, of course, celebrate their first victory the next season as a rebuilt team. You know, as a church, we look at this and we can identify with it so clearly. Paul spells it out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Ever felt afflicted? Got news for you. You may be afflicted, but you're not crushed. You, you may be perplexed, but you're not driven to despair. Have you ever felt perplexed before? Perhaps. Maybe you've been perplexed about a circumstance or a situation. Maybe, maybe the problems have come about that you can't solve, but here's the good news. You are not driven to despair. Been persecuted? Not as Americans. Even if you were, you're not forsaken. Struck down? Maybe 
but not destroyed. Why? Because we're always carrying the body of the death of Jesus. We were crucified in Christ. We walk through life as crucified members of the community. Our, our old self is crucified in Christ. We carry the body of death in Jesus. Why? <laughs> so that people can see the life of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. As Jesus' people, the life of Jesus ought to be evident to everyone who sees regardless of how hard our lives have been or how hard our circumstances may be today, regardless of what trials we've been through, regardless of what addictions we carry, regardless of any of those things, as followers of Jesus, we, bury, we, we bear the body of the death of Jesus so that people can see the life of Jesus manifest in us. They ought to see it manifest in our lives. They ought to see it manifest in our families. They ought to see it manifest in our Sunday school classes. They ought to see it manifest in our churches. People ought to see Jesus' people and say, these people are clear evidence that Jesus Christ is alive. Because here's the truth. We've talked about this for the last three weeks. That clock is still ticking. But we're never done. We stay strong. No matter what the world throws at us, we keep doing gospel work because the gospel is the only hope that this world has. It's not found anywhere else. We, it's easy today to get sucked into politics and problems. It's easy to get sucked into, you know, who got indicted or, you know, who stumbled off the stage. It's easy to get sucked into all those things. But let me tell you this, an indictment against a former president or a current president stumbling around the stage is not gospel ministry. And it's news but it's not gospel ministry. It's not a gospel witness to a lost and dying world. It's so easy to get sucked into these things, but our job church is a gospel job. And that is the job that we ought to remain steadfastly committed to. And if we believe that, we put those beliefs to work, and when the church put those things to work, it becomes an unstoppable, unstoppable gospel force in a dark and dismal world. And the fruit of that work it's what we witnessed earlier. A young lady committing her life to Christ and publicly professing to, that, that she's a faithful follower of Jesus to a watching world. That is our motivation. That is our encouragement. That is where we look at a lost and dying world and say, you're not taking this one. And we ought to have that conversation with each and every soul that we encounter. And so what we pray today is that our work as a church ought to lead more and more to scenes like that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity with which it speaks. I thank you, Lord, that there's a mystery at work that sometimes is, is hard for us to figure out. God, how in the world do you have control but at the same time give us liberty I don't pretend to understand how, but I certainly understand that it's there and that's how it works. Father, I pray that you would help us to know that, that if we are in Christ, God, that our lives would reflect the reality that we are part of the divine family. You have adopted us, made us children. <laughs> you did, you chose us. We're not born naturally, you chose us, brought us in. What a place of privilege, what a place of honor. May we live our lives in such a way that reflects that. At the same time, God, would we as a church be a, a church that recognizes that there's a million good things we can do. But those good things are not gospel things. And so may we do the gospel things well. May we 
point into our local schools and into our sports teams and into our workplaces. May we shine a gospel light into those places because it's the only place for hope. It's the only place for hope. And when trials come, and we know they will, may we remain steadfast and strong. May we be obedient to you. Father, I pray today that if there's any in this room gathered here who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, they've heard who Christ is today, the the son of God who, who gave his life that they could be saved from Satan, sin, hell, and death. If they would receive this gift, they would be granted eternal life. They'd be brought into the family. And so God, I pray that as as that works and your spirit works, that there may be some even here today who've seen the baptism of a young lady who say, I want to know what it means for Jesus Christ to be Lord. God, I pray that you would move in this time and in this place that you would call and they would respond. God, thank you for your word and for your people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.